right, so the Soviet move is to sweep across the hillsides, these big pushes through valleys, clear out areas, but really only hold some of the cities or parts of the cities. They hold all the cities on this highway route from from Herat down to Farah, all the way down to Kandahar, then kind of back up to Kabul, northeast, then all the way up to Kunduz. And then at Kunduz, they kind of go east over to, um, uh, was it Faisalabad? Oh, Faisalabad. And then they go uh, kind of west and up to uh, Mazari Sharif and uh, Termez. Because they come in through Termez. That's one of their biggest entry points from the Soviet Union. That's where the famous bridge is that you see all of them coming across when the war ends in 89. Um, that's near Termez. But, um, but uh, yeah, it's basically a big U that goes to the whole country with Kandahar being the bottom of the U and Kabul kind of being at the halfway on the right side. Um, and they're going to go over to like Jalalabad and stuff too, but like that's about as far east as they're going to go. They get up to the Pakistani borders sometimes, um, but the problem is they just can't hold anything outside of the highways. And the thing is, is after the invasion starts in, 19, in 1979, very quickly, if anything, this actually, rather than supporting the DRA and backing them up and giving them more power, it galvanizes a lot of factions that wouldn't have otherwise fought. There were a lot of factions that weren't fans of Amin and the PDPA, but they were just kind of like, whatever, not our problem. But now the Soviets are getting involved. And the problem that happens immediately is that the Soviet tactics early on and throughout the war, their tactics aren't necessarily to clear villages. It's to deny en the enemy anything. And that means women, children, we're denying them villages, a place to sleep, a resource. We're not letting them live in these villages. Think of um, like your Vietnam tactics of search and destroy on steroids. They're scorched earth. Scorched earth because they don't want the mood, the Mujahideen to have any base of operations they can work out of. And in the process, they're alienating the entire population. And they're also driving more people away from the army, away from the villages and into the hands of the Mujahideen and into various sections. Um, it's, it's just their tactics are terrible for hearts and minds. It's, it's nowhere near that. And they're dropping mines and in the process of denying area access. And we see the results of that even to this day in Afghanistan where Soviet mines are still a problem. Hell, look at Bagram. Shoot, I mean, but yeah. Why? Why did they pursue these types of tactics? Because as you're saying it, um, we know it's not going to work. Um, it doesn't sound like it's going to work. It sounds like a good way to get more people to rise up against you. Why? Like, why did they decide to go down that path? And maybe that's too, you know, Soviet tactical, theoretical. Um, well, it, what it really comes down to is the fact that this is not what the 40th army or the Soviet army as a whole was trained for. They were trained for force on force, near peer, you know, strategic warfare in Europe and with a war against another, a Western power. They were not trained for guerrilla warfare on the whole. The closest thing to guerrilla warfare that they had conducted in themselves had been tactics in World War II of some of their partisans. But this isn't doctrine that goes into the Soviet army. Soviet army doctrine is big picture. At the best, you've got small airborne units being dropped in behind enemy lines in some large strategic level stuff in, in their planning, but they are not prepared for a guerrilla, for an insurgency. They're not, and they do not fight it like an insurgency 
at first. Later on, they do get a little better, and they essentially begin to start to do their own equivalent of air assault, essentially. Their, their airborne troops and even their motor rifles, their regular infantry, um, essentially, they get better and better about helicopter work. Um, they rule the air for the first five-ish years of the conflict. That doesn't help the fact that their night vision equipment isn't great, and the Mujahideen rule the night. That's when they do their moving. That's when they hide. And the Mujahideen are also just by nature. And I know that the Taliban today are a bit more organized. We, we often lump them together. But the Mujahideen was really just an umbrella term for all these groups that were fighting the Soviets and the Afghan government as a whole. Really, they weren't, so many of them can't even be described as like one side of the Mujahideen or under one leader, because so much of their leadership was focused, the Mujahideen was focused around one particular guy who was just, who had the personality to lead and take people out into the fight. He might not have had any traditional training, but he got that training through combat and he garnered the respect of these guys. They might not be, be they were rarely well-trained soldiers. They did have better trained guys who were younger, disconnected from families, so they didn't have to go home after a given attack, because that's a big part of this too. So much of the mood, it, it wins against the Soviets every time or most of the time because it's so disjointed. And these guys are so undisciplined. They, they go to fight, they ambush some guys or some Soviets in a really good tactical advantage on high ground. They take what they need to, they go away. And then that group, which may have been a cohesive group of maybe 100 Mujahideen that day, they'll break into their groups of 20 and be like, all right, we're going back to our homes. We'll see you in a couple of weeks if you need us later. And they're not, they're not staying in any one place. At this point in the war, we'll call it the midway point, right? Early-ish, mid-80s. Um, yeah. Are these, when you say Mujahideen, throw out a rough percentage that are local, that are Pakistani, or that are foreign fighters? The vast, majority, yeah. the vast majority are local. That's the thing. There, you do have some Pakistanis, but most of your Pakistani support is coming directly from Pakistan. It's uh, the ISI, which is their kind of like their CIA. Um, the US CIA is also a big portion of this. Um, and you're getting and you're getting support from China as well, actually. Um, back to that Sino-Soviet split we talked about last episode. But um, that's why you see, you know, Chinese rifles being used and Chinese equipment being used by the Mujahideen by way of Pakistan. But um, no, the vast majority of the fighting are local. And that's and that's the thing. You do get volunteers from other places um, and you even get volunteers from as far away as Japan. I've read some stories of Japanese volunteers fighting with the Mujahideen. Um, and they some of them who come from out of country are there for jihad for reasons of wanting to fight for the faith. There are other people who are just wanting to fight against the Soviets and want an excuse to fight communists. Um, but they're vastly, by and large, they're local. It's not the way we think of the um, of uh, uh, Al Qaeda in Iraq. You know, sure. like there there are a lot of foreign fighters, things like that. Um, it's it's very local and homegrown, and that's why it's so effective because these guys live there, they fight there, and then they can go home at the end of the night and blend right in. Gotcha. So mid eighties. Now you, you kind of hinted at this, but I think you're, you're probably going to get into it. Maybe this will be a segue. You said the Soviets for the first part of the war ruled the air. So, so they do rule the air throughout the conflict, but what, okay. started, what gives the Mujahideen an edge, of course, is the, the infamous example in this is that the U S and the CIA start to um, give uh, the Mujahideen and the ground forces there against the 
uh, Afghan forces and the Soviets, uh, the Stinger missile. Stingers are a new technology this time in the 80s. For those who don't know, we still very much use them in the US military to this day. Um, they're actually really popular now and it's with, uh, for anti-drone, <laughs> for drone warfare, uh, for smaller drones. But essentially, for anyone who's not familiar with um, the Stinger missile, it's not an explosive warhead. It's not like an RPG. Um, a lot of people think of it as equivalent to an RPG that can just shoot down a plane. No. What makes a Stinger deadly is it's specifically designed to fight thin-skinned, fast-moving aircraft, i.e. Soviet helicopters like the HIP or the Mil-8 or things like that, or the Mi-24, things like that. These aircraft that are the bulk of the airlift capacity of the Soviet Union, they're moving very fast, but they're very thin-skinned uh, with aluminum skin, just like a Blackhawk is today. Um, and what a Stinger does, is essentially, it's kind of, it's similar to a Sabo round for the new tankers out there, um, but it's a small rod of metal, essentially, that goes very, very fast. And when it hits this light skin thing, it's meant to puncture a small hole, but that hole is, is enough that when moving, the inertia of the movement of that aircraft starts to tear it apart. And that's how a Stinger missile works, essentially. And these are extremely effective um, against Soviet air power, uh, especially aircraft, because they are laser guided um, and they lock on these aircraft very well and they, they do their job. Is, is it a fair comparison between Soviet war in Afghanistan and the U.S. involvement in Vietnam to have this, like, this slow creep, um, as in it seems like in the early years we can get this done with minimal troops and and, and not a big presence, and then you blink, and for the U.S., it's over 500,000. I think you mentioned the Soviets peaked around 100,000. Did they start at that level, or was this also kind of some um, kind of a slow buildup? No, it, it, it builds slowly, and also in the Soviet mind it does, because the Soviet public isn't totally aware of the impact of the war, how many of their sons are there, until really by 84, 85. 85 is considered the deadliest year of the war. That's when you have the most, um, the, the heaviest continual conflict between the Soviets, Afghan government, and the Mujahideen. Um, and that's when the bodies really start to pile up, and it becomes really hard for Moscow to ignore. Also, 1985 heralds in the first full year of Mikhail Gorbachev as the leader of the Soviet Union, and he begins a whole bunch of programs in the USSR, which ultimately generally lead to its downfall, generally speaking. Um, but these programs that allow for more access and more questioning in the public and, and demanding things of the Soviet government and openness um, and restructuring of the government, um, these are those two words, openness and restructuring, are glasnost and perestroika, pretty well known to a lot of Americans as kind of synonymous with Mikhail Gorbachev and being this reformer in the Soviet Union. But those are also going to come back to bite him because all these these mothers in the Soviet Union are going to start asking, why are our sons coming home in zinc coffins and we're not being told why? They're being told they did their international duty and that's it. They're not being told where they died, why they died, how they died. And the only people who are telling these women and, these, and the Soviet public at large what's happening are the returning veterans who are coming back disabled, disenfranchised with no support system. Most of these guys are conscripts similar to Vietnam. Um, but it, it starts to, it grows, and by 84 and 85, it is 
a sizable force and it can't be ignored anymore. And it starts to gain more traction in the Soviet press and internationally as well. The invasion of Afghanistan in 1979 is actually part of why we, the United States and a couple other countries boycott the Moscow Olympics in 1980. We do not go to the Olympics in 1980 because of the invasion of Afghanistan. Um, and that's part of why the miracle on ice thing happens later on. It becomes its big focus because everyone wanted to see this hockey game in 1980, but didn't get it. Um, but um, it it's known internationally, but in the Soviet Union, it doesn't become known until midway through the war, by which point it's been kicked down the road by successive leaders of the Soviet Union who have died, um, and nobody knows what to do with it. Maybe this isn't the time. Maybe you'll hit on this later, because I think it's going to tie into later events, but I don't understand why this was such a big impact. I'm The numbers are vague. I've seen... Um, I'm looking it up now, but between 14,000 and 26,000 Soviets killed in Afghanistan, which is nothing to scoff at unless you grew up in the Soviet Union during World War II. And then the, that's a rounding error. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, what I think the last I saw in World War II is 27 million, mm-hmm. right? So how does that number, let's call it, let's cut it right in the middle, 20,000. How does 20,000 in 19... 80s play such a role in kind of the end of the Soviet Union? Well, let's let's put it into this context. In 20-ish years of conflict in Afghanistan with the United States, we've seen, what, 5,000 KIA between Iraq and Afghanistan? Oh, between both, yeah. Yeah, so that's 5,000 in 20-odd years, roughly. Afghanistan is nine years. You see that many dead in two years. People start to ask questions. The other thing is the government can't shut up guys who are coming home. There are guys coming home who have all seen these terrible things, who've been attacked, who are losing arms and legs and having to come home and describe to their their mothers what just happened to them. And they're talking to each other. And the the women, really, it's a lot of these mothers that are back home, the, the mothers of these sons that are coming back dead or missing or wounded want to know what's going on and that's going to start to build but what really why it's an impact on the soviet union is a combination of things starting in the 70s um Leonid brezhnev that leader i mentioned to you guys uh in the last episode he starts spending enormous amounts of money to maintain peace through arms essentially maintaining that the soviet union by spending and expanding its military expanding its nuclear weapons arsenal um and spending and spending and spending on all this technology, it can try and win and keep the U.S. at bay. At no point, however, do they really match us. And Reagan knows this. And that's when, throughout this whole conflict, the Reagan administration takes over in, of course, January 1981. Um, But the Reagan administration knows this, um, condemns them for the invasion of Afghanistan, which the Carter administration had already done. But they begin to spend the Soviet Union into oblivion. And that's kind of what happens. The Afghan war becomes the culmination of this extra spending, people dying and not being told about it, people disappearing and not being told why. And by the time you have Brezhnev dies, then you have Konstantin Chernenko dies, and then you have Yuri Andropov. Uh, I had to swap. It's Yuri Andropov then Konstantin Chernenko. But you have the leader of the Soviet Union dies in 82. His replacement only lives two years. His replacement lives a year. 
And then they're, they're replaced by a relatively young at 50 odd years old, Mikhail Gorbachev. And Gorbachev restructures everything, starts to change all these things and open up the public and allow for the reporting on these things and allow for these things to come to a head, which starts to open a lot of things up and all these problems come to a head all at once. Um, and the international community is also making people more and more aware of it. Um, but it's really, it's not that the Soviet Union, that Afghanistan destroyed the Soviet Union. It's a very good symbol for the end of the Soviet Union. They weren't prepared for that conflict. They weren't trained for it. They tried to work their way through it with brute force, money, spending, but they couldn't win. And it's, it's a really good way of tying it up. And conveniently, the Soviet Union dissolves less than two and a half years after, after the end of Afghanistan. Do you think there would have been a different outcome in Afghanistan, a portion of the hypothetical here, if the Soviet Union had tried to fight this conflict in the 50s or the 60s? Um, if that political pressure that, um, yeah, the different issues they're dealing with at home I don't think there would have been a different result because when you look at the high levels, the commanders of the war in Afghanistan or the commanders of the, and the government, um, the leadership, even Brezhnev, who okayed this, um, the invasion, even he said he wanted it to end very quickly. The problem was once they were in, they couldn't end it too soon or else they would lose face, but they couldn't, they didn't want it to go too long or they would waste a ton of money and lives. Problem was Brezhnev dies. Then You've got Yuri Andropov. He doesn't want to pass the buck. And by the time he dies, you've got another guy who dies 14 months later. They, you, your leadership and all your guys who are at the top are old curmudgeons and guys who don't want to be labeled the loser. And they keep trying to talk back and forth. And don't get me wrong. There are attempts through this period, especially through every year after 83, you see an attempt at peace agreements and uh, ceasefires in Afghanistan. And sometimes they hold out, sometimes they don't. Generally, they fail within a couple of days. Um, but it's when you get Gorbachev uh, in, 85, in 84 and 85 who comes in and goes, all right, we need to put a stop to this. And that's how long it takes. Think about how long we've been talking about trying to leave Afghanistan. And so Gorbachev, it really took him about two and a half years to negotiate a ceasefire and peace agreement and a pullout. And by the time they got out, um, it was about another year-ish later after they started really kicking in for it in 88. Um, they get out in February of 89. But it, it's, I think since then, as this last conflict that we all saw vehemently as a failure on the part of the Soviet Union and the Soviets saw as a failure, um, we it's very easy to bookend with the, dis, the dissolving of the Soviet Union. That makes sense. I, I, I always think that we have to simplify history in order to be able to tell it over time, right? We can't, mm -hmm. we can't spend nine years talking about a nine-year war. We got to condense that down. So it makes sense to have, in, you know, in a sense, talking points. Um, and I think the Soviet involvement in Afghanistan maybe is, is an easy way. Like you said, it's an easy way to bookend, an easy way to highlight. I mean, is there, was this kind of the last major event for the Soviet Union? Event being very broad. Um, before it eventually it's collapse. Is, is collapse the right term for the Soviet so, collapse? I I prefer the term dissolved okay. because collapse implies a certain um, inevitability to it that the people involved couldn't stop it or do anything about it. Whereas 
dissolved, I think, really lends itself better to the reality of the situation, which was some people were actively dismantling the Soviet Union, while other people were trying to hold on to bits and pieces as it as it kept going. And these people and one country left, another republic leaves, another republic leaves. And eventually, what you really end up with, while the Soviet Union officially dissolves on officially December 26th of 1991, when a party Congress, the final group of uh, Soviet republics meet together in a Congress, and they agree to dissolve the Soviet Union. It's known, it's very, it's known on TV and by media because it was broadcast live. The last days of the Soviet Union um, exclusive filming rights went to either ABC or NBC, I think it was. Um, and, but they had film crews in the Kremlin following Gorbachev, following Yeltsin as the Soviet Union actively ended. And then Gorbachev gives his final address. And at midnight on Christmas Day, well, towards the end of Christmas Day, the Soviet flag is brought down from the Kremlin and the Russian tricolor goes up. And that's what we all think of as the end. But really, the year before that, everything's starting to go. The Prior to this, um, prior to this, Gorbachev starts this... Um, his part of Glasnost Perestroika. Glasnost is openness, allowing people through the media to criticize, allowing to see more about their government and hear more about their government and be critical of things. You also have Perestroika. Perestroika is restructuring. And that is Gorbachev's attempts from day one in 1985 to try and make them a more democratic country. In fact, in 1990, he they have um, their first elections where in his mind compared to the old system they will allow people the public to vote on multiple candidates still in the same party they're all in the soviet party but they're going to allow the public to vote for the members of essentially the head of the communist party whereas before it was a congress of selected individuals within that that voted um and in 1990 they actually changed from the leader of the soviet union being the um the premier the head of the party and Gorbachev is elected the president of the Soviet Union. He actually is the one and only president of the USSR. That only lasts a year-ish and a half. But um, before this, he's starting to try and open things up and try and get more hands off the rest of Europe. He's not going to keep giving support to Warsaw Pact countries if they want to break away. That's part of why East Germany goes down as peacefully as it does and why when the wall opens, it's part of why there isn't any shooting and part of it's also... Um, a lot of a lack of coordination through their their government but well i, um, I have a question on that piece there because what, what yeah. you've just described it's as you're talking it's making me think there's a part of history that i just have never heard of because what you just described is like you've got the kindling you've got the dry wood and somebody's pouring gasoline on all of that and there's matches everywhere it's ripe for a civil war it's ripe mm -hmm. for somebody to say no, it's right for a general to say, I'm not going down without a fight. Like, but well, that as you're talking about that, I don't think I have that in my mind that there was serious conflict. Am I wrong? Well, that, that does happen. That's why you have the August coup, which um, is shortly before. So when all this democratization is happening, Gorbachev is actually pushing and gets people to vote in the Communist Party to rename the Soviet Union. It becomes the uh, Union of uh soviets oh gosh they they want to change the name of the soviet union and basically make it a, a a federation of countries whereas instead from the center moscow controlled everything right 
But what they want to do now is change it to more of a federation where the individual republics have more of a say in their individual economies. The planning is not going to be as centralized anymore. It's not going to be controlled from the center or it's not as much. And they want to adopt a new constitution. It would be the first constitution that the USSR has seen and approved since 1922 when the USSR is officially um, created. And in the day before this is supposed to be ratified in the Congress, there is a coup instituted by hardliners within the government. And basically, Gorbachev is at his dasha down in, uh, in the warm weather areas uh, near the Black Sea. And he's basically held in his dasha while these hardliners try to take control of the government in the parliamentary house in Moscow. The army goes out on the streets and blocks off the parliamentary house to keep people from coming in and stopping them. But ultimately, while there is some shooting and there is some some a little bit of fighting it the the people by and large are against this and this really puts the final nail in the coffin for gore for the soviet union and the hardliners that would want to preserve it as the old way what ultimately happened was gorbachev went very quickly into democratizing the soviet union there were hardliners that didn't like how quickly he was doing that, and other people saw that, took the opportunity, and went the other way left entirely. They wanted to go as liberal as they could, break up the union, and start their individual countries. And funnily enough, we don't think about this, but the big ones that put the nails in the coffin of the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union dissolves Christmas Day. Months before that, you have Belarus, Ukraine, and Russia all leave and declare their independence from the Soviet Union in December 2nd of 1991. And most of them declared their, their sovereignty months and a year before that. You Hell, say you Russia? Had, what's that? Did you say Russia? Yes. Now, Russia? Remember, remember that within the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union refers to a union of Soviet republics. It's 15 republics at this point. And the Russian Soviet Federative uh, Republic is one of those. It's the largest and and has the bulk of the power, but it's one of them. Ukraine is the second largest because it's the breadbasket and by ethnicity, it's also one of the second largest ethnicities in the greater Soviet Union. Belarus, the Belarusian SSR, that's another one. Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, uh, Georgia, uh, again, you know, these are all independent republics. I just even- thought Russia would be the last, the, the, the you know, the one closing no. the door at the very end. I didn't, it never... Wow. And that's what that's what screws Gorbachev, because overnight you have you have the what would be the independent parliament of the Russian Soviet Republic now becomes the Russian parliament. But the seat of power in the Soviet Union, the head of the whole Soviet Union is in Moscow. And for a time. You have Gorbachev living and working in an office right next door to Yeltsin, who is now the president of Russia. It's, it's a bizarre time for about a year, year and a half, where things just, no one knows what's going to happen. And no one prior to this thought this was ever going to happen as quickly as it did. Probably or as peacefully. I mean, I, I, it just seems like there's too much for such a large chunk of the globe to change their political system. I feel like that doesn't happen without bloodshed very often. It's kind of interesting. Well, and it's not, well, Russia is one of the, few that kind of gets away there, there is some bloodshed but not to the extent the thing is is the bloodshed is all going to come after the dissolution of the soviet union the legacy of the cold war and the breakup and the bloodshed that starts afterward the 90s is going to be an extremely bloody and nasty time 
for the post-Soviet republics. And in some of these republics, wars had already broken out. Abkhazia and um, the uh, the crisis that just played out back earlier last year, uh, the war in uh, Abkhazia versus um, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, that conflict was already playing out as, as late as, as early as 88 and 89. You had um, across the rest of the Warsaw Pact that starts to leave and try to change over from communism at this time, 88, 89. In 1989, you have Poland luckily dissolves into a bloodless coup um, that changes over the um, communist uh, government, despite the fact that in 1981, there was a hardline crushing of a revolt in Poland that turned to martial law and crushed any hopes of anything. But the resistance went underground, stayed around the Solidarity Group, and it came back up in 89 when the time was right. East Germany, things are already kind of not looking so good for East Germany at this time. While the wall still stands, and Eric Honecker, the leader of, of East Germany since 1971, technically, um, but he's been in power since the 60s. He, he claims that the, the Berlin Wall will stand another 100 years. Well, in 1989, he's ousted, actually, in October before the Berlin Wall opens in an effort to try and start to relax and follow their own kind of way in a little bit of restructuring in, in East Germany. It's not to the massive extent that the USSR does because East Germany sees what's happening to, to Gorbachev and they realize they don't have his support anymore. So they have to do things on their own. But they want to do it slower. East Germany wants to start opening up things more, but they're pushed very quickly by the fact that Hungary opens its border, which means that overnight, one of the other countries that would otherwise guarantee that East Germany is sealed, they open up a border, which means overnight, all these East Germans start flooding the southeast of East Germany. We think of the wall opening, but for most East Germans, Hungary, the Hungarian border was really what actually started to open things. And this was earlier than the wall in November of 1989. Czechoslovakia, same thing, the other border with East Germany. They start to ease, relax their restrictions on the border. But what really is watched by the US and the Western world is of course the Berlin Wall. Because it's watched because it was, it was far more documented. It was far more media friendly. It looked like a big event and it was, but it was, it was also the fact you had the Western influence right there in West Berlin when the Berlin, not the rest of the wall, which reminder, there's a wall that also encircles the rest of East Germany. There's just another wall that's very famous that, that keeps West Germany inside East Germany. That's the wall that opens up in November 9th of 1989 by accident. During a press conference, the head of the border guards, they say, when are you guys planning to reopen? There was a structured um, plan to reopen the border in phases so that it wasn't chaos. And the thing was, is he misunderstood when he was asked this question and his response was interpreted to me immediately. He said, right now, it's gonna start opening. In his mind, he means, it's going to start opening now. We're going to start implementing this process. What the world hears is we can just go now and people start to gather. And eventually what happens is the border guards are there. There is an order at the time to not to, um, if you are armed, not to shoot. And if, you, and if you're going to relieve somebody, don't take your, your weapon. Don't keep it loaded. And the, this is the Schiesbefeld, the, the order to shoot that's so infamous with East Germany that killed over, well over 100 and some odd people over the 29 years the wall was up. But it um, overnight, all these people swarm the wall and the guards just kind of go, what the hell are we going to do? And they open up the gate and let people through. And this opens the wall. And this is a great symbol that's 
high, that's highly publicized and watched and followed that just becomes this great symbol for the opening of East Germany. And overnight, it's not immediately decided that they're going to unify East and West Germany. This is not, they knew that this was going to be a long-term goal, but it was not something that was expected to happen as quickly as it did. Because for those of you who know, or that don't know, the wall opens November 9th of 1989 and October 2nd of 1990, East Germany ceased to exist. That's less than a year later that a whole country just dissolves and goes away. And it's really due in part because in March of 1990, only about four months after this, East Germany liberalizes. They, um, they have their first open free and fair elections. The democracy party that's elected is pro-unity. Everyone votes for them. And from March 1990 onward, East Germany goes, all right, I guess our goal now is to reunify. And even then, they didn't think they'd be reunified until 91. But they did anyway by 1990. And the Soviet Union is still is still in one piece at this point. They're just hands off now. But to your word about blood, it's going to be bad in some countries. Romania is one. It goes very quickly, but around Christmas of 1989, a, um, uh, basically a small civil war breaks out in the capital between troops loyal to the government and um, some police and some civilians who get arms. And they open up fire and kind of split. And it, the real fighting only lasts a couple of days, but it is bloody and several hundred are killed. But ultimately, they capture the president, the communist leader, the lifetime communist leader of Romania, uh, Nicolae Ceausescu. And he is uh, summarily put on trial on TV and then shot live on TV in front of the entire country. Um, and it's bloody and it's brutal, but it's quick. So it's it goes bloodless mostly. But where but what they don't gain in blood. 89 and 90, and in the peaceful dissolution of a lot of these countries, is going to be gained in the 90s. All that blood is going to be brought back tenfold in a lot of countries like Yugoslavia and, and Turkmenistan and the Caucasus and countless other countries are going to break up. And it's going to be painful and it's going to set the stage for a lot of stuff that's there's going to be genocide, there's going to be all sorts of problems that play out as a result of the breakup of the Soviet Union and the vacuum that it leaves. I guess what I should say um, to my previous comment around, you know, no violence or bloodshed, my thought was more around, though we're talking now when we get into Yugoslavia, kind of the secondary effects of power vacuum um, yeah. or a change in the order. I was thinking more, and the, the piece that just came to mind was the fact that you didn't have an armed insurrection that really um, took to the streets in the Soviet Union or, or, um, people when Gorbachev said we're going to, or when they decided to, to really open things up, that there wasn't, you know, a, a fighting coup. Um, so it's, it's impressive, but, um, a big part of that is the support of the leadership in the militaries too, especially in the Soviet union. Cause you gotta remember each of these countries and the republics within their respective, what later become countries, they're all more or less loyal to their regions than they are the center. And so a lot of these commanders, like, like commanders of the Ukrainian army district, are more loyal to what will become Ukraine and the now early on illegal but later independent government of Ukraine. They're going to be loyal to them and not the government of the Soviet Union. And that's what a lot of it comes down to is loyalty to their ethnicities and their respective republics and a tiredness of being controlled from the center in Moscow. What's the point where we say the Cold War ended? Is there a point? I mean, there's there's a lot of places where the Cold War never ended. I mean, look at 
Korea. I mean, that's in in my mind, the Cold War is still very much going there. And the spirit of the Cold War, what like think about our animosity with Russia right now. That wouldn't exist if it weren't for the Cold War. That still very much exists and is very alive today. The the animosity with China and its communist government and the way that it it's it works, that's the Cold War. We're in a Cold War right now. Cold War is just a term to mean a conflict of ideologies that doesn't turn into an open conflict between those believers. But I generally think of the end of the Cold War officially when George Bush Sr. announces it in Congress. Um, I think it's January 2nd of 1992. Um, Soviet Union dissolves uh, Christmas Day. But um, he announces in Congress, he basically gives essentially a big victory speech um, to Congress saying the Cold War is over. And he does officially see that. And it's the, it's the official end of the Cold War. That's what I think of as kind of the final nail in the coffin is that is that George Bush Sr. addressing Congress. There were a lot of people, though, that were not fans of that. They told they told Bush Sr. They said, hey, we we obviously won. The U.S. came out on top because we're still a country. The USSR failed. Their system did not work. But don't rub it in their faces. Over here, we kind of we were also fresh off the heels of a victory in uh, Desert Storm, which gave us a lot of renewed confidence in our military, um, something that we'd really been missing since the days of Vietnam. And a lot of people just kind of went with it. They're like, hell yeah, we won. We won. It's over. Hell yeah, we beat them. But a lot of people in the former communist world saw that as a huge slap in the face. And that didn't help relations that were already kind of tenuous. Um, and we did have a brief period where we were on pretty good terms with Russia or better terms with Russia. But that kind of went out the window by the late 90s. Um, and we were already back at loggerheads. We knew that they weren't the empire they were before. But we, it was never going to end or be, we were never going to be on as good of terms with Russia as, say, like Britain or Canada, yeah. you know, after the mid to late 90s. Because Russia went through very bad teething problems. Their government was overturned. They, all their industry, their nationalized industry was, was privatized overnight. And many people made a lot of money overnight and a lot of people suffered as a result. Um, but I think of that, the flag raising of the Soviet Union, that's the end of the Cold War, that nine days or seven days from December 25th, 26th, to January 2nd, 1992, that's, that's the end. But the funny thing is, is you continue to see tensions and nuclear issues like like there's a there's an incident in 1994 where um a um basically a rocket sent up in the atmosphere from norway with approval from higher echelons in the russian government and the u.s um and it's used for weather mapping but this rocket's signature on a lot of radar and stuff looks like a nuclear missile and the people at the top approved it but people at the bottom didn't know this was happening and there were a bunch of people in, in lower levels of the Soviet of the now Russian military that thought there was a nuclear strike happening and it was avoided by a couple of guys saying no there's no way this could happen and these close encounters continue to happen to this day we just haven't heard about them all I'm sure and I mean there's close encounters all through you remember we were talking about the thing with the um, with the uh, uh, Cuban Missile Crisis yeah. there's a similar one with that where there's a Soviet um, uh, missile commander basically a, a missile battery commander um, in 1983, uh, there's a lot of tension in 1983 in West um, in Western Europe because the U.S. is getting ready to 
um, to place new Pershing II missiles in Western Europe, in West Germany, because that's our most up-to-date um, nuclear weapon delivery system. But there's a bunch of heightened um, tension, and I'd say it's probably the most tense the Cold War gets force on force in Europe, is 83-84 um, in Europe. But at this time, shortly before we do this big training exercise called Able Archer in um, November, um, we're gearing up to do basically, you know what Reforger is? I don't think so, no. Reforger was a program the U.S. did every year starting in, I think, 1968 until 1994. And it stands for uh, Return of Forces to Germany. Reforger is shortened. And basically every year the U.S. picked an active duty division. And they said, at this time on this date, you have 72 hours to get your whole division from the continental U.S. to Europe and in position to fight a war with the Soviet Union. And Reforger happened every year like clockwork. But in 83, there was a new war game called Able Archer, which was to test a nuclear conflict, a preparation for a nuclear conflict using training methods like a, a simulated going to DEFCON 1. DEFCON being um, defense condition. It's the highest level of preparedness for a nuclear strike that the U.S. accomplishes. But it was a, there was going to be preparing to go to DEFCON 1, simulated, uh, simulated radio silence, all these things. And, um, and all the forces in NATO came together to do this. And it was so realistic, the Soviets thought it was real. And they started nuclear arming jet fighters and getting everything ready. They thought, it, there's like, there's no way this, is, this isn't real. We got to be prepared for this. Eventually, they accepted it was trading um, after they announced basically the exercise was over. But a month before this, um, essentially, there is a new nuclear missile detecting system in the Soviet Union. Um, a uh, strategic uh, rocket force uh, commander, I believe he was a major, um, and I think his last name was either Petrov or Pavlov, but this guy is a commanding officer, and he sees, he gets a signal that says one missile has been launched, and according to their computer, this new system, this detects one nuclear missile is being launched towards your, your direction, right now. and he goes, no, nah, if this were the end of the world, there'd be like a whole bunch of those. One, I think it's just the system acting up whatever we'll we'll pass on it this happens four more times in the same period and every time this commander passes it off as a bug in his computer system but had he approved it it would have gone up the chain and this would have been a treated as a a a nuclear strike from the western forces and this guy is later credited with basically having saved the world from nuclear annihilation because of a flaw which essentially happened from um sunlight reflecting off of a particular cloud structure in the wrong way but he knew that this thing had had a couple little bugs earlier on. He didn't want to risk being that guy. And he was later fired, I think, for disobeying his orders. But um, it was found that there was a flaw in the system. And he kept us from there. The, the history of the Cold War is full of these little things, even afterward. It's, it's really, it's truly fascinating, really. So we've got the Cold War, which is a war that's not fought, but also is fought in a lot of different places around the world. And then it stopped, except that it didn't stop, and it's probably still going. So that's why um, we need people like you to talk through it, because holy cow, it's hard to get my head around. Um, Ian, that was a lot for four episodes to try to cover everything you did. I think <laughs> you did an awesome job, man. I Every single one of these, you dove into topics that um, I'd never even heard of, let alone knew about, if that makes sense. So thank you very much for taking the time to do this, man. Absolutely, man. Happy to do it. And, uh, and the Cold War is a very interesting topic that I hope more people take the time to dive into and 
understand the, the nuance of it. I like it. Well, thanks again, man. We'll, uh, we'll talk soon. Absolutely. All right. So we are back for part four of the Cold War podcast. Um, this started three hours ago, uh, broken down into four parts. So three hours ago, um, Ian was nice enough to, to jump on here. We said, let's talk Cold War just as a broad overview and quickly realized that's not a one hour conversation. What to talk about. <laughs> so we, you know, not going to rattle them off the top of my head, but essentially broke it down into a decade or two at a time. And this, I think, will get us through the end of the Cold War. At least that's the idea. We wrapped up part three. Um, if you want to go back and listen to that, it, it ends with the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. I, I think that's the right term to use, but we're going to get a little more specific here. And today we're going to take it from there. So early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, all the way through to the fall of the Berlin Wall. So Ian, thanks for being back, man. Anytime, man. You know, you know, I love this stuff. All right. So actually, last time we had a little audio issue. We were just talking about it before we started. Um, just normal tech hiccups, but I think we resolved it. So if you listened last time and the audio got a little frustrating, I think we got to resolve this time. Thanks for sticking with us. Um, Ian, I said invasion of Afghanistan, but I feel like it's a little more complicated than that because it's not, I mean, they're pushing troops across the border, but there was also a relationship there prior. Is that accurate? Absolutely. Um, so first of all, I want to say I, uh, I misspoke in the last episode. I mentioned briefly, I was so on the, the terms for the military and thinking about China that I mentioned um, Zhou Enlai, who is actually like a right-hand man to Mao, but he wasn't the guy who succeeded Mao. Um, that's Deng Xiaoping. Deng Xiaoping is going to be the now leader of China at this point in 79. So I was rattling off and speaking so quick. I screwed that up last time. So if, if I get know, any hate mail, I'll send that your way. <laughs> I, uh, I remember that when I was listening to the last one, but so 1979 comes around. So leading up to, we'll call it the invasion of Afghanistan. And, and that, that is a good term for it because it is a true invasion, um, but it was not meant to be a long one. So there's a couple different things to keep in mind here. So as far back, so Afghanistan has a long history of relative independence, even longer than countries like India and Pakistan next door. Afghanistan had its independence as a republic. Um, relatively since about 1919, 1920. So it's been an independent country. We don't often think of it that way because of all of the kind of imperialism and wars associated with other countries invading, invading it. But it's been an independent country for a while. It's fiercely so. Um, there's reasons for that, as we will discuss, and as I'm sure you're well aware. But leading up to for the purposes of what we're talking about here, 1973 is a pivotal year. 73 is when the king of uh, Afghanistan is overthrown and the government is officially established as a kind of socialist, uh, democratic socialist sort of republic um, in 73. Uh, it's established by and led by initially by a man named uh, Daoud Khan. Um, now, Khan is not a communist. Um, but he has other people in his coalition government starting in 73. And there is a essentially a communist party established in Afghanistan in the late 60s that becomes part of this early coalition government when they overthrow the king. And that's the PDPA, the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan. Sounds very communist. It is. It walks like a duck and quacks <laughs> they, like a duck. 
they, they checked all those boxes, right? <laughs> yeah. And they, um, but the PDPA is, has within it, uh, this communist party has two factions um, and the Parchems and the Calcus. And basically these two parties, even though they're both part of the communist party have different ways of going about their programs. Um, and just keep in mind that they're going to be kind of at each other's throats while also against the Daoud Khan government that they're part of. And this results in essentially the PDPA um, overthrowing them through the military uh, in 1978. And after this overthrow, which is also partially, this is endorsed by the Soviet Union all through this time after 73, the USSR is involved politically and diplomatically with ensuring this government kind of has some legitimacy, but they don't have troops on the ground yet. They do have a lot of officers in their military, the um, Afghan army at this time, uh, a lot of them are trained at some uh, universities and a lot of their um, their intelligentsia also go through uh, universities in the USSR. Um, but they're, you're gonna have officers within the army that are trained uh, by the Soviet military and have tactics and kind of indoctrination that's uh, centered around a lot of tactics and um, doctrine that the Soviets follow. Um, Is so that similar to what you'd see in the Eastern Bloc, just geographically a little further out? Yeah. Yeah, very similarly, because you have senior officers throughout the Warsaw Pact at this time that um, it's a mark of distinction to be of a high enough level um, and considered, you know, smart enough and, and have enough achievement and things kind of going on for you that you can invite to go to a Soviet academy. The Fruins Academy is the big one. It's, it's one of their big, um, it's like their army command and staff college, essentially, in the Soviet Union, the Fruins Academy. But um, in 78, these officers have a um, form a coup. It's called the Sour Revolution. Uh, Sour um, is actually the, the um, I think it's Farsi for uh, April, essentially, but it, it means the April Revolution happens in April. And immediately from the outset, the PDPA now is a one-party state. Prior, it was kind of a coalition government. Now it's a one-party communist or socialist state that declares it is a socialist-friendly state. And at this time, they know that they're gonna that any country that establishes itself um, establishes itself in the Cold War as a a socialist friendly state to be on the path of communism is going to immediately get backing and support financially from the Soviet Union, um, and they do this because they know they need the money. But they're also a communist and socialist party. But they're now a one party system. However, the PDPA, like I was saying, is split within it. You have the Caucasus and the Parchem movements. Basically, they fight with each other enough that by 1979, um, one of them wins amid this. And, and the leader of one of the sides basically ousts all the other ones. Um, and the one who comes out on top, his name is Hafizullah Amin. And Amin takes on a lot of the, um, it takes on a lot of these programs that were instituted in 19, starting in 78. And that's the thing that starts to grind a lot of people here. Afghanistan and a lot of the people outside of the cities, and stop me if I start to sound kind of familiar, but a lot of people outside of the cities aren't super fond of the um, very Western, very uh, socially liberal programs that are being pushed upon the population when the PDPA comes to power. And a lot of these programs actually started, had their origin before the PDPA comes to power. But in 78 and 79, um, the PDPA starts to institute all these programs like uh, land reclamation. And you're going to have especially a bunch of stuff involving um, giving a lot of equal rights to women in the public space. And the big thing that starts grinding a lot of people are these things combined with a uh, gradual um, movement towards uh, an agnostic 
or really um, an atheistic uh, government. Uh, there's, it's not going to have any um, views or laws based in Islam. And it starts to really piss off a lot of people out in the countryside. You have a very traditionalist society throughout a lot of this country. Um, and it's going, you're going to take people who are already mad in some militias that were already not fans of the government, but it's going to take a lot of people who might not have been super against the PDPA, but are now going to start to have a bone to pick with them. And this kind of comes to a head with Habazullah Amin. And Amin um, starts to be seen, he, he, he starts to be seen as, as not only corrupt, but also as taking Afghanistan down the wrong path by a lot of these militias. And now spurred on in 1979 at this time by the successes of the Islamic Revolution in Iran. Remember, this is a big event for the Middle East, especially. Afghanistan, I still hesitate including Afghanistan as part of the Middle East for a lot of reasons. But for sense of simplicity here, we think of it as the Middle East, or at least in American minds, it usually is grouped in um, because of our military past there. But this happens in 79. And you start to have militias that rise up and start to attack and fight openly with the, um, the DRA. The, the, Afghan, the Afghan government after 1978 is referred to as the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan, the DRA. And the army starts to have open fights with them. And the Soviet Union is deathly afraid at this point of losing a socialist ally, which, by the way, Afghanistan is on the Soviet Union's border at this time. Um, it doesn't, you don't think of it in your mind as being somewhere to be right there. Um, but it's right there on the border with it borders Iran in the west, the Soviet Union in the north, and China on a tiny little strip to the far straight east, and then Pakistan. And Pakistan is going to start fueling through weapons and support and medical uh, supplies through the eastern part of the country to a lot of these militias and anti-government groups that are starting to form. But the Soviet Union sees the writing on the wall and sees that Amin has to go. This guy is not doing them any favors, and they don't want the country to fall to another Islamic revolution. And they don't want to have an extremist government on their doorstep. So in, on shortly before Christmas Day in 1979, the Soviet Union begins an invasion. Ironically, at this time when the invasion starts in 79, Amin is instructed shortly beforehand to go hide in not the palace that's in the middle of Kabul, but in the palace that's up further northeast, that would actually be easier for the Soviets to capture and kill him. So the Soviets are doing this invasion to try and get Amin, but Amin thinks at this point, he's actually been kind of asking and requesting for the Soviets to come in and aid him on his side, but he doesn't realize that the Soviet Union sees him as the problem. So that's what's happening before the invasion actually begins. So I was gonna, and, and I'll probably do this, 35 times, but try to draw a comparison to the U.S. experience in Vietnam. Absolutely. And I started to worry that calling an invasion was, was going to put my foot in my mouth, right? Because I don't, I don't consider the U.S. involvement in Vietnam as an invasion. Um, but when you say that they're, they're coming across the border gunning for the head of state, it has a little bit of a different tone than um, working with the South Vietnamese, even if the South Vietnamese government maybe was corrupt and the leader was incompetent at times. Um, not an expert there, but it seems like this is a little bit different. If they're, I didn't know that they were coming to oust the guy. They're going to stand up their own government is their idea, right? They're going to stand up their own government and replace him with someone who to the Soviet Union is a better replacement um, within the PDPA, who is still a devout communist, but not a me. And they hope that with his help, they can help stand up or get rid of a mean and stabilize things 
help stand back up the DRA. Because by the time the um, the 79 invasion happens, the army is deserting in droves. It's down to like 30,000 troops. It's very small from its previous like 90,000 or so. And they're deserting in droves and joining a lot of the militia groups. And so the US, the Soviets see this and they do this invasion to try and kill Amin, get rid of him and replace him uh, with, um, with his replacement leader uh, that they deem suitable. Um, and this is a decision though, because when the troops that go in, it's going to be the 40th Soviet army, who's just over the border. Um, and when they come in, though, they, they refer to themselves throughout the entirety of the war, by the way. At its peak, there's going to be a little over 100,000 troops um, in Afghanistan by the Soviet Union. But they refer to their army throughout this, their group there in culture and in newspapers and media. They refer to them as the limited contingent of Soviet troops. Because the initial thought was, we're going to send these small, a couple brigades in the 40th army and some other they also remember throughout this your unit structure is far different the soviets are always under strength so what we think of as a brigade is really closer to like two two battalions maybe um and a battalion's closer to a company and a company you know all the way down the scale think of them all scaled down from what they would normally be in in name 50 percent so is that of if you go, what if you use 50%, is that a decent? 50 ballpark? to 60. Yeah. 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 And it, and with the invasion, their, their whole plan is they have a ground invasion and there's an airborne drop. There's two different ways. What really happens initially is the, the super sneaky guys in an operation called a uh, storm 333. They invade this palace, um, which becomes shortly afterward becomes the headquarters of the 40th army. It's the, um, Taj, Tajbek. I can't remember the name of the, it's, it's in Kabul, um, but it's up on this hilltop. You can look up photos of it. Um, if you were ever in Kabul as a U.S. service person, I guarantee you saw this, this place. Um, it's got some of the highest ground for a reason. Um, but Amin goes to this palace and elements of the Soviet Spetsnaz, Airborne, and also parts of their KGB super high-speed guys, uh, Vimpel and Alpha, who are these small team. Think of them as kind of like, I want to compare them to SEALs. They're closer to like, maybe like they're they're like sf guys a little bit better trained um but they they go in in teams and they kind of cock it up at first they lose a few guys but they get through basically some of the best troops that the afghan army has defending amin in his own home kill a bunch of these guys or they surrender and then kill amin as he walks out of his bedroom and then they occupy his building and make this the headquarters of the 40th army at the same time as you have troops being dropped in, you have troops coming through the north through, uh, they're coming in through Termez on the border, but they're going through Kunduz and then straight south to Kabul. And then they're coming through on the on the west as well uh, through Herat. And they're coming down um, south and then going east and kind of like a big U around the country on the only major highways Afghanistan have at this time. So when I, when I think of the Cold War and all of the work the United States did in say South America or, or Europe, it's a lot of like underhanded covert action where over time you find out the heavy hand that the United States played and maybe placing somebody in power, but it's always, there's always like this little bit of deniability. It's kind of like the key to a lot of us cold war actions. In my opinion, this is like the other side of that. Like this was a special operations raid to kill the head of state. Was it presented? Like, like I thought you were going to say that, like they chalked it up to a missed airstrike or something. Like, no, they just went in so there. They made an attempt at first because the guys who went, who stormed this palace are put in Afghan army uniforms. 
Um, the other thing is some of the earliest troops they send in are called the Musbat, uh, the Muslim battalion. And these are um, Soviet troops, but they're from Muslim uh, stands in the outer regions of the, of, uh, the USSR. And they're familiar with this region. They blend in. They look like people that would live there. And the Musbat is actually put in Afghan uniforms initially, and they're brought in assuming that they're going to better blend in and better work in this environment. Um, that's how large the Soviet Union is. They can just grab a whole bunch of, of, of people from a certain republic that blend in better with Afghanistan because their country is that freaking huge. Um, but they, um, there are attempts at this, but it very quickly becomes you know, the case. And, and Amin, to the, the moment he was shot, didn't believe that the Soviets were the ones coming to find him. That's why he came out unassuming and was, was shot to death and then blown up with a grenade. Um, they, he didn't believe until they were storming the gates of his own house. And even when he came out of his room, that they were there to get him, that the Soviets were the ones there to get him. He thought they were the Dushman, or which is their nickname, the Badman, otherwise the Mujahideen. And after this, the Soviet army is going to stay there, but continue to reinforce and continue to operate. And they're just not going to leave. And there's a couple different reasons for this. One is the Mujahideen continue to be a threat. Two is through the length of this war, you have multiple handovers of power in the Soviet Union. The leadership dies, you get a new one, he dies, you get a new one, he dies. You get several, you get a, more turnover in four years of Soviet history here in leadership than you had in the last 20. So it's, that is a big factor as well. Um, but the main thing to remember is that throughout this war, despite all the tactics and the way that they conduct their war, which is very different from the way the U.S. Um, conducted the war in Afghanistan, which also didn't quite work out, but this way also didn't work out. Um, you basically have the Soviets holding some, but not all cities tentatively and the highways between them. And that's it. They are they And all of their fighting is based around dropping a whole, a whole bunch of troops. And a lot of Soviet operations are not the way U.S. operations work, where you have a FOB, you send out your small teams, you do your rec, you hold a place for a little while and come back. Or you, or you sit on a hillside at a FOB and watch that valley for however long. Instead, in this, it's going to be you have your big cities where your bases are at. You muster up 10 to 20,000 Soviet troops. You do an offensive where you sweep through a whole valley that holds a highway. You hold those high points and then you leave. And that's generally how the whole war goes back and forth, essentially. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.